millions of views. You look at like somebody like Muhammad Ali and some of his fights, you know, in the past, and you know people just pour themselves over those things. You'll have coaches use those videos and like play them over and over again as they're training people to try to get them to understand like the mind and the practice of somebody who can excel at, at a craft like that. And that's the thing with God's word is when we love God's word, when we understand just what, what it is and what God is doing through his words abiding in our hearts, just we recognize that we're able to, as, as God's word just washes over our minds and our hearts, there's just more and more that we're able to get out of these things. And so um, it's, it's just, it's never tiring to just pour into these things more and more. So just an overview of the time and map, just remember it's, now it's been about 70 years since the time of Solomon, 70, 80 years. Um, Naaman is from Aram, which is northeast of uh, Israel. Basically, public enemy number one for the nation of Israel. And Elisha and the king are going to be in Samaria, which is southwest. And Naaman will eventually be washed in the Jordan eastward of that territory. So just so you have at least like uh, a frame of reference for distance, for relationship of territories. That's, that's kind of about what, what we're looking at. Um, so let's jump right in at verses 1 through 9. So cleansing Naaman's leprosy. The focus of like how I'm going to word these sections um, is going to be on the servants involved because we really see this idea of faith in servants really being emphasized throughout this chapter. Um, so I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Go ahead and stop there. Um, interesting thing is, you notice at the beginning of this, the emphasis is on God having, in a sense, almost like exalted Naaman because through him he had given victory to the Arameans. And you'll notice when it says that there were bands that went out against Israel to capture this servant girl, the idea is God giving victory to Aram would imply victory over Israel. So God was working with the Arameans as he was working with uh, Israel. Obviously, we understand that God can work with all nations and all peoples and not just with the nation of Israel. But this, this servant girl, I want to just think about her for a second. Had God ever cured somebody of leprosy before? Um, Elisha had done many miracles in his lifetime, but he had actually never done that. Uh, the closest thing I can think of is Miriam. 
Um, you remember when uh, Miriam and Aaron complained against Moses that God struck Miriam with leprosy, Moses interceded, and then that lasted seven days. So that's the closest thing I can think of, but I just bring that up to emphasize that this servant girl uh, in verse 3, she believes that God is capable of doing something that he hasn't really done before. She also believes that God's power can be given to this foreigner just like it could be given to an Israelite. Not only a foreigner, but actually an enemy of Israel. And I want you to think about this and how this might be in her frame of mind. Could the Arameans be any more enemies of God than Israel was? I mean, think about like how much an enemy the nation of Israel itself was of God and the tools that they had to make, uh, to make themselves greater enemies than Aram could, being Gentiles, being without the law, not being of the circumcision. So really it kind of makes sense that if God was willing to be so patient with Israel in its condition, how much more then would God also be willing to extend mercy outside of the nation? Really so many things about this time frame make God's grace so much more clear in almost like a new covenant kind of way then it could be clear if the condition of the nation was in a better spiritual condition in a lot of ways. And then not only the servant girl, so she tells her mistress, the mistress tells uh, Naaman and he's willing to listen and go to the king. But then even the king in the next verse tells Naaman that he's going to go to the king of Israel with a letter written by the king himself. So even the king of Aram is willing to extend uh, his own riches and kingdom to seek and to plead with the king of Israel, his enemy, to heal his servant. So not only does the servant girl have faith, Naaman is willing to take this girl's word as truth just to follow this rumor. The king of Aram is willing to also have at least enough of a belief where he's willing to send the captive and his army over. And then you have the king of Israel himself. The disappointing thing about this entire chapter so besides Elisha, we're going to see just a failure of faith in people who should have been close to God. Mind you, Elisha is in Samaria. The servant girl said that. The king is also in Samaria. Basically, Elisha is like right next door, and it doesn't even cross his mind to seek Elisha out. When miracle after miracle after miracle had already been performed to indicate that this was very possible, so everybody seems to believe but the king of Israel himself. And Elisha, obviously, hearing about this, just simply says, bring him to me and he will be cured. Let's look at verses 10 through 19, converting a servant. Uh, verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and, and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Just as a, a kind of side note, this isn't on my outline, 
But what you see over and over again throughout the history of the kings, at least in the, the king's account uh, rather than the chronicles, when you, what you see in the times of Elijah and Elisha, servants continuously have the faith to save the day. You remember in 2 Kings chapter 3, when the kings were going out against Moab and they were so far out in the wilderness, they no longer had water and they were all going to die and be defeated. It was actually a servant who said, hey, Elisha's here among us. And then they're able to go uh, see the prophet and they gain victory. So over and over again, it's, it's servants who save the day in these accounts. Very interesting. And we'll talk more about that in application. Um, but I want you to think about this, the way that Naaman came to the prophet, the things that he said once he heard what he needed to do. Did Naaman understand the nature of God or his promise? And the reason I asked that question, that did not take away its power. Even though he didn't understand the nature of the promise, how the promise would be fulfilled, he came with like all this revenue of wealth that was totally unnecessary. He thought he might have to like buy this uh, miracle. And this would have been like, millions of dollars worth of wealth that he brought to the prophet. Um, He didn't see the prophet face to face. That didn't nullify the power of the promise. Uh, He received the promise by means of a servant, a third party. And he also rejected the promise. So like he was initially like totally disobedient. And yet what we see in the account is God's promise still stood despite all of those things. Um, and there's a lot of messianic uh, New Testament um, undertones and all those things with the way that Jesus, just by word, or even for us, how we ourselves are like a third party. But all we're doing simply is delivering God's promise, even if it's not face-to-face. The reason why that's so important as well, Naaman wanted this uh, prophet to come out to him face-to-face, I think is his initial primary difficulty. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like at work or like at school where you have tried to get help for something from your boss uh, or maybe like a professor and they were like too busy in their office to come out to you so they just gave you like some quick answer and sent you on your way. Um, I think like sometimes that can feel very insulting because even though you got what you needed it was as if like you just weren't important enough for a bigger conversation or like everything else they have going on is actually much more important than you. So you can almost like get distracted with how you were treated even though you got what you needed out of it. I think maybe a different way to think about this. So another UPS story. There would be times at UPS where my, um, my supervisor, like my boss's boss's boss would talk to me and they would try to say something helpful. But the way that they would say it sometimes would really bother me. So like, I felt like they were treating me very badly. (laughs) And I would think like, wow, they don't have to treat me so badly for me to listen. Like, you know, maybe it'd be easier to listen if they just showed a little more respect. So I'd I'd kind of get lost in like how they were treating me rather than the fact that they were actually willing to help me, right? Which was actually not a good way to think about it. So I think like that's really the difficulty is Naaman is a captain of an army. He's respected, he's a valiant warrior. And the way that Elisha treats him here, it's as if he's really not being respected for all this work and money and the position that he's in. You think about like the distance he's traveled to get here and he just like sends a servant. One thing I think about that, that again, I don't have my, on my outline, I think might be important to think about is the issues of Israel were so pressing and so important 
that although God was willing to heal Naaman, it was important for Naaman to understand that he and healing him was just one blip on a bigger radar of Israel's catastrophic condition, right? And who was Elisha ultimately sent for? It was the people of Israel. Think about Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile woman, when Jesus was far north outside of the territory of Judea. This woman comes to him, pleading with him to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And Jesus at first isn't willing, and uh, it's because he was sent to the uh, lost sheep of Israel primarily, right? But with all of that, if you'll notice, um, under converting a servant, point A, under that first point, the nature of God's promise and the method of its delivery is actually as important, if not more important, than like the immediate result of the promise. Because God's promises are not just to do something for us in a moment and send us on our way. Ultimately, God is seeking to truly humble and convert us through his promises, right? So the method of delivery, although it did not meet Naaman's expectations, the work of how this was humbling his heart, how it was bringing him lower before God and emptying him of his feeling of privilege and right, the impact of that conversion on his heart was as important, if not more important, than just the action of his leprosy being healed, right? Um, now, how, can, how important were the servants again? So Naaman goes away in a rage, and it seems like he was well on his way to going completely back to Damascus. And his servants, again, have enough sense to urge him to see that the prophet had asked him to do something that was actually extremely simple. He goes, he does it, and he's cleansed in a way that was better than his expectations. Um, I think, really, a lesson in his skin being like a child, Naaman had humbled himself like a child in this. Just like the song we sang, he simply trusted and obeyed in a very childlike way. Right? Let's read uh, verses 15 through 19 and look at how he was further converted because Really, the work of conversion is actually not done. And there's more that God is going to do in the heart of Naaman to bring him closer uh, after his physical cleansing, at least. Uh, so verses um, 14 uh, through 19, 15 through 19, rather. Uh, when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, and he, lends, he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. First thing is Naaman did what none of the kings of Israel ever did. He actually came back. You never see that with the kings of Israel after miracles were performed that benefited them. They never come back. Do you remember Luke 17? Jesus, by his word, cleanses ten lepers. And there's one who ends up actually returning 
Now, Jesus did not command them to return, neither was Naaman commanded to return. But really, is it so unreasonable to expect that such an understanding would be in the mind that you would be moved to want to give thanks for what had been done, right? So Naaman comes back, and you think about what it would have said about the kings of Israel. For instance, again, chapter 3, what if the king of Israel, after that victory, would have come back, come back to the prophet, given thanks, and determined to worship God? Do you think that may have impacted his heart differently just to have enough motivation to return, right? So he comes back for one, which I think shows signs of great conversion and gratitude. But did you notice how Naaman refers to himself throughout this small section we read? Five times he refers to himself not only as a servant. Did you notice when he's talking to Elisha, he says, your servant. He's putting himself underneath the prophet to serve him, right? I think that's another sign of conversion. The third sign of conversion is Naaman's focus for worship is forever changed. Um, I don't know if this was something Naaman was necessarily initially attending to do just based on language. So like verse 17, when Elisha was determining to take nothing that he had brought, he says, if not, please let your servant be given the two mules loads of earth so that he can use that to offer burnt offerings to God on. Just, I could be wrong about this. I might be reading something maybe too much into it. But it seems like Naaman seeing the, the selflessness in Elisha's character and the evidence of God in his self-sacrificing willingness to do this for Naaman while having literally no impact by the amount of money that had been brought, none. It seems like that only furthered and deepened the impact of his conviction. That if you're not going to take this money, then let me then receive this dirt so that I can now give true worship to God alone. And notice just how sensitive he was in this desire that like of all the things that he could be thinking, he's prudently anticipating his own need for continued mercy. So I don't think we're supposed to say like, oh, God was okay with idol worship and him being shown mercy here with like, bowing with his master. One, I think it does show God's mercy. But two, I think it just, it magnifies the tenderheartedness of Naaman to desperately want to live and to abide in the mercy and the forgiveness of God. To build on his conversion, not just as an act to walk away from, but as something to become a foundation to continue to build upon. So I think we see so much true conversion here. Keep your finger here. Turn to Psalm 80. I just want to very, very quickly um, just show you how the psalmists really had the same attitude. Psalm 80, verses 14 through 19. The psalmists were reflecting on a very bad time in Israel's history where they recognized they also needed to be restored. And I want you to notice something that the psalmists understood that if God would be willing to restore them, their desire was to increase their worship and the genuineness and the, the, the intensity of their worship. Psalm 80, verse 14, O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted, and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. 
Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. And notice, then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. The idea is the desire is for things to be better than they were before after God restores. It's to equip greater worship in the future. Back to 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. So all of this is very good, but the story actually continues in a surprising way um, with Elisha's servant, who we've seen in chapter 4 demonstrate in many ways a quality faith. But let's look at verse 20. And we're not going to read all the way through verse 27 initially, um, but through verse 24. This is the cursing of another servant, 20 through 24. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he had brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes, gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. So just to kind of put into your mind the amount that Gehazi ended up taking here, so this would have been roughly like forty to $50,000 worth of goods that he ended up taking. Uh, and he, he's really clever about this, right? Like he doesn't take a massive amount. You imagine how suspicious it would be if like Gehazi ends up all of a sudden like being extraordinarily wealthy and it's like, where did all this come from? So I mean, it's a, it's a massive amount, especially when you consider that Israel was basically in one famine after another back to back. So this may have been still a fairly massive amount of money, but maybe enough where Gehazi could maybe a little more secretively and maybe some more subtlety live off of this and just have maybe a little bit more of a comfortable life. Um, But there's just a sense of secrecy in this. But just an initial question. So Elisha, when he was talking to Naaman, he said, as the Lord lives, I will take nothing. Gehazi, did you notice he also uses God's name in the oath that he makes in his own mind? Um, So if you look at verse uh, 20, um, I'm sorry, verse 21. I'm sorry, it is verse 20. He said, as the Lord lives, I will run after him. I want to suggest to you that Gehazi's view of God had been totally compromised and that he no longer was abiding not only in understanding the character of God, but even he wasn't understanding his role as a servant and representing his master. While Naaman, through all of these things, had become more and more a servant before God, Gehazi, through this, actually becomes less and less a servant of God. And I want maybe to put this into your mind. Why would these goods hold such power over Gehazi's mind? And why didn't the money have any power at all over Elisha? Like, why would there be this distinct chasm of separation 
between the way that Naaman's goods had impacted these two men, who both were striving to be servants of God. Um, And with that, Gehazi had to blaspheme the character of his master to gain these things. Uh, He had to misrepresent Elisha. He had to lie about who Elisha was. He had to lie about Elisha's interests. And we'll see in a moment that Gehazi well understood uh, the wickedness and the sin involved in these things when he's questioned. But the big thing, I think, is Gehazi did not take this opportunity when there was this conflict of mind to ponder on and admire the decision Elisha had made. And I think this really exposes a lack of godly fear in Gehazi's heart. That's one thing you'll see is completely missing from the way that he had worked through all of this to make his decision. A complete absence of respect or reverence or godly fear. No respect for Elisha. No adoration or awe that he would make such a self-sacrificing decision, but instead a complete focus just on the goods and the benefit those goods would offer to him personally. So this went from being an opportunity to also convert Gehazi and change his heart as Naaman's heart had been changed. And instead of being an opportunity for Gehazi's heart to change, it instead becomes an opportunity for his heart to be hardened and for him to become more distant from God. Um, And just think about this. Do you think that ever happens with us? That like we're faced with opportunities to actually become more ingrained and immersed into the mind of Christ, but maybe because of just not having the perspective or the adoration or reverence for God, those opportunities just fly right by without realizing it. And so many times they just become opportunities of self-service rather than godly service. Um, We'll get more into that in the application. But let's look at 25 through 27. But when he went in and stood before his master, Elisha said to him, uh, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, Did my, not, my heart not go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper as white and as snow. So Elisha's question first, I think, gave Gehazi an opportunity to humble himself. But for two, since he didn't, it exposed that Gehazi again clearly understood that what he did was wrong and that when questioned, he needed to hide what he had done in shame. Um, Elisha's response, I think, shows two things. One, Gehazi did not understand emotionally the condition that the nation was in to embrace that emotional weight, right? Um, And the second thing, not only had Gehazi not embraced the condition of the nation of Israel, uh, but I think his plan was to begin accumulating with that wealth, like Elisha says here, not just the talents of the silver and not just the food that would come from that, not just the clothing, but to begin amassing like his own kingdom in a sense, buying his own servants, buying properties, buying vineyards, buying sheep, buying oxen, that instead of now serving others, Gehazi could begin now more investing himself rather in serving himself. So this opportunity 
of serving this other person selflessly now turns into an opportunity to begin amassing self-service as a result of these things. Um, Think about the prudence now of how that may impact the nation moving forward. That instead of having a prophet who is representing God's character in a way that's planting seeds of restoration among the weak among the nation or the beggarly, that instead the prophet's influence is being tainted by pride, by the same mind as the kings who are apostate from God, and how over a long term, if this was not marked and dealt with, how the leaven of this could begin leavening the whole lump of God's work within the nation, right? And I think Gehazi, because of these things, have blinded himself to the greater impact of the consequences of these things. So with that, um, there's some principles and applications that I think we can draw out of this, this account. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Um, this first point really is just about the nature of God's words um, and what God's words really give us and offer us um, in a way that I think Naaman's account can help us to appreciate more. So John 6, 53 through 58 uh, John 6, 53 through 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So the living Father has sent me I w- and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, but also, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Um, I know this sounds like Jesus is talking very specifically and nearly exclusively maybe about the Lord's Supper, right? He's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But in the context of John, in the context of John, do you remember John 1.1, how Jesus is described at the very beginning of the gospel? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I think while Jesus in this may be referring to, in some way, the Lord's Supper, I think he's actually referring more so just to actually reading, meditating on, and accepting his words. That Jesus, as the living Word, you think about the Jews, even in the midst of this conversation, The things he was telling them were confusing and frustrating, and I think just like with Naaman, there is a character to God's word that's meant to convert our hearts in Jesus' blood and his body, just the nature of who he is. There are times, and I'm sure you have felt this way, you may read God's word and actually feel confused and frustrated and actually angry because what you're seeing is just so different from what you expect. It's, It's different from your background or your expectations. But did you know that's actually a good thing when you read God's word and you're frustrated? Or maybe you read God's word and you struggle with a feeling of just your inadequacy of understanding. Like you read God's word and you think, man, I should understand this. Or like you read God's word and you think this is really confusing and the fact that this is so confusing and there's so many people who like have such great answers for all these things, "Ah, I just can't read it, I can't understand. Did you know it's good for you to feel that way? Was it good for Naaman when he heard the promise to feel frustrated with his own expectations and his own 
feeling like he needed to be honored or flattered in some way as a result of coming to the prophet. Here's a reality. Reading God's word and just thinking spiritually is a lot different than things that flatter our own interests that oftentimes are a lot more easy to invest in and to think about, right? But it's kind of like eating healthy food. There was one time, like, kind of a short time in my life where I decided to, like, eat really healthy and, like, I ate mostly, like, natural foods. And after a while, like, artificial flavors actually tasted bad. Like, candy tasted bad. Things that were sweetened artificially tasted bad. And, like, broccoli tasted amazing. And, like, Brussels sprouts, they tasted amazing. And, like, all these foods that normally would taste more bland, like, tasted incredible. But it was because, like, I had been, even when it didn't taste that great, I had been eating a certain kind of food for long enough where I acquired a taste for it. Like, coffee's kind of like that. Like, I used to hate coffee, and I love coffee now, the taste of coffee. So that's the thing, like, we just have to understand that Jesus is nature. And when we think about his body and his blood and just how much higher the principles of his character are as a living, living organism, that's going to challenge us. It's going to humble us. And having the discipline to realize that God's word is designed to bring me life and restore me and convert me and challenge my heart can draw me to abide in his words even when I am constantly being confronted with a feeling of inadequacy as a result, right? So Jesus' words give greater life, but the principle of how those words are delivered challenges us in the same way. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16. This is more on the note of Gehazi and how he failed to consider the mind of Elisha in this instance, and therefore his heart was unable to be converted. The idea is Jesus made decisions in a mind of grace that is so far beyond our comprehension. And the invitation, and, and I don't just mean like, this isn't the last point this morning, so not like the invitation this morning necessarily, but the general invitation that God is offering us through the gospel is actually to explore his mind and to like enter into the mind of Christ if we adore and honor him, if we respect and revere him in those choices. First Corinthians 2, um, the Corinthians were actually falling from appreciating these things. Um, but if you look at verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, uh, it says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Just with that in mind, the idea that Paul is conveying is we have access into the mind of Christ. We can explore his mind, and his mind's been delivered to us through the Spirit of God. And the natural man, like Gehazi, is unable to appraise or really judge or examine that appropriately but if we're willing to humble ourselves, God has given us access to have a converted heart that continues on as we think about the decisions of God and his judgments. You'll notice on your notes, just for time's sake, we won't turn there, Philippians 2 talks about having a mind like Christ's. How Jesus poured himself out 
being God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead taking the form of a bondservant, made himself obedient even to the point of obedience to the cross. The idea is Jesus' mind was the mind of a servant. Jesus' mind was the mind of a servant. So I think a way to think about this, maybe just a little bit more specifically, you remember how Naaman, when he ended up coming back to Elisha after being cleansed, he said, your servant, your servant, your servant. Do you think about yourself as a servant? And I don't just mean like in moments. I mean, is the fact that you are a servant and ambassador for Christ, a servant of God, constantly on your mind? Are you thinking about the mind of Christ and how would Jesus think about this? Or how does the cross help me to think about the situation? Are you seeking to get into that frame of mind? Do you admire that frame of mind? Because if we admire the mind of Christ, especially exhibited on the cross, we will naturally imitate the example and the decision that was involved in that time. Uh, final application in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, from one letter to the next, the Corinthians' biggest problem was actually this. They were taking themselves and they're taking themselves out of and endangering the mind of a servant like Christ. First letter, Paul addresses this in the beginning, and Second Corinthians is an entire letter dedicated to exhibiting and bringing out the mind of a servant consistent with Christ. So in chapter seven, one through three, he says, "Therefore, having these promises, beloved, promises of fellowship with God, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God." Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So Paul's opening up his heart to them. And he's telling them that he's done nothing against them. He's been completely self-sacrificing in his relationship to them, much like Elisha was entirely self-sacrificing in his relationship with Naaman. And the urging to them is because of seeing these things in Christ and in Paul that they needed to strive now to perfect holiness by cleansing the things in their hearts that were blocking their capacity to be put into this frame of mind and share in that mind. The idea is perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Gehazi lacked a fear of God. If we fear God, we admire the mind we see in Christ. If we admire the mind we see in Christ, serving, sacrificing ourselves, does not become a burden to be rejected. It becomes a source of rest and peace that we embrace and prayerfully pursue. We can surrender ourselves to the will of God in such incredible ways because of the open door Jesus has left for us through the cross. So the invitation ultimately is to see God in a way that truly puts us in a position of reverence and awe as we see the majesty of his works and the things he's done for us. And so that's where we'll stop the lesson for um, this morning. Um, obviously with the Sermon on Naaman, it would be unfitting to not mention baptism, right? Um, Naaman, when he was given that promise, was not cleansed the sixth time, the fifth time. He still looked exactly the same, leprous, just as he was from the beginning. But when he had fully submitted himself to the method, the purpose of God's promise as a child, God's promise was fulfilled. He was cleansed. Cleansed in a way that he could not have perceived before coming to meet the prophet. 
if you're here and you see God's majesty in a way where you are drawn to him and want to surrender yourself to him, he's made his promise clear. If you repent and if you seek to submit yourself to baptism for the remission of your sins, God will wash your sins away and he will create in you an entirely new beginning where you can live in fellowship with him for all eternity. If there's anything we can do for you, bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.